where were you physically when you first had when you had that first conversation? When you first like, I got to make these phone calls. Where where were you physically? I paced my living room for an entire day. So I I was at home for all of that. And at home, I mean, I remember the night we decided that we were going to do this. It was a very small group. Me, our COO, Luke, my owner, um, Haley, our vice president of human resources. And I remember we made the decision on the phone. No, we were on Zoom because I had to turn my camera off and mute myself and because I was crying. You know, and I think we all went to bed that night. Like three weeks ago, we were running a successful business. You know, we were opening in Shanghai the next month. Like it was unfathomable that like this had all happened in the course of what was realistically about 10 days. And I think that was an emotional roller coaster that, you know, no one could have been prepared for. listening to the reinvention podcast i'm aaron anderson this week tara Cortland and i talked to actress turned restaurateur virginia lillian to discuss the heartaches and hopes of living in covid era new york visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and other free resources the reason i wanted to talk to you and thank you for this um, yeah, thank you. There are sort of four reasons that I wanted to talk to you, especially to have you meet Tara. One, you're right in the middle of all this in COVID New York. So where are you in New York? I live in Long Island City. Okay. So I'm about a four-minute train ride out of Grand Central. I live right on the East River. So one, you're in New York, right in the middle of it. Uh, two, you're from the arts. You were last I saw you. You were had your degree in theater, and then moved with a whole bunch of friends up to New York City, and then you had a, a really interesting and very successful transition into the world of business, where you're really successful. You've done just amazing stuff, and so I want to hear about why you made that transition, and most especially how you made that transition. And then also, a couple of weeks ago, because of your business position. You had to close a bunch of restaurants and let a bunch of people go, and you you posted a really moving thing on Facebook. So that what's going on is just something I really want to hear about. And then also, I think you're really awesome. And my wife wanted me to say that you are her very favorite student that we ever had. Or we're friends with. She is high on my list of favorite humans. Yes. So, so she saw you guys saw each other at the women's march a while back. Yeah, we did. We had like one shout out on the street. That's crazy. You just happen to run into each other in the middle of all these people? Aaron's wife was one with the pink pussy hat. <laughs> yes, the one. <laughs> yeah, in the midst of hundreds of people, someone was like, Virginia, and it was and it was y'all. So <laughs> Oh, that's crazy. That's great. So so how are you doing? How are things today? So things today are, you know, I think that the one of the most amazing parts about um, COVID and everything that's happened around the country is that it has happened so quickly. Um, so things today are a roller coaster, like they always are. This is a good day um, as we start to talk about the plans to reopen our businesses. Um, but still a world in which, um, you know, my the owner of my company lives in Portland, Maine. 
and uh, Portland, Maine has about 30 cases of COVID total. So it's been so interesting to see the different perspectives. We were having a conversation the other day and he said, I feel like we're thoroughly over, you know, the hump of this. And I said, I do not feel like that at all. <laughs> so, you know, I think the funny thing about New York is that it is, um, it, it, it is really taken what is the soul of this city and the urgency and people everywhere and, and really slowed us all down to a, to a snail's pace, which is sort of the opposite exact, of New York. Yeah, exactly. So, so what is it? Um, are the streets, I mean, what are the streets like? Um, pretty empty, except when we have really good weather days, it's a little scary how packed they are. So I live right near, if you know, the famous Pepsi sign that faces Manhattan, I live right near there and there's a giant park. And if you go out on a day that's over 65 degrees, you can hardly get with, you have to really maneuver to keep six feet of distance. So that's pretty strange. And, and other than that, it stays pretty quiet otherwise, but everyone's fully masked. This has weirdly turned New York into a little bit of a New Orleans. There's bars selling cocktails out of their windows because that's legal now. <laughs> so if you walk around my neighborhood on a Saturday afternoon, it looks like a very slow bar crawl um, <laughs> throughout the streets, which is actually kind of nice in the middle of what is kind of tragic and tough on everybody to see people kind of still have their community. It's interesting. Do you know anyone who this is directly affected? Yeah, I do. I have several employees who have had family members that have passed away um, due to it, mostly older. One younger, though. I have about six friends that have gotten it uh, and all recovered, which we're really lucky for. So I think that, you know, we said at the very beginning, especially when the New York numbers climbed so high so quickly, that this was going to affect everybody. And we have, I run 12 restaurants overseas in Japan and China. And speaking to our Japanese partners, when this first became really bad here, they're about eight weeks ahead of us. And he said, once you, someone you know contracts COVID and gets better, you're going to feel better. But you, you need that to happen. And he was right. Like when my first friend recovered from this and was up and going, it was uh, you start to go like, OK, people are going to people are going to heal from this. But it is, I mean, on all accounts, it is a, a terrible, nasty illness. You know, my house is kind of stocked with Pedialyte and acetaminophen, and I'm, you know, bearing down to what will become an eventuality of living in New York City, which is probably contracting COVID. So how big is your place, like the place you live in? Because we, let me background, we, everyone I know has been talking about as we've been in quarantine for now, we're on day 54 going, thank God we don't live in New York. We've got like, you know, <laughs> like everybody's got like a four bedroom house and a yard. And you're like, at least we're not in New York City. <laughs> yeah. So I live in a one bedroom. It's probably about maybe it's like 1500 to 2000 square feet. So it's actually pretty large by New York standards. I'm really lucky that I have a roof. It's nothing fancy, but it's kind of a lifesaver. Oh, you have a, um, a roof you can go out on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm quarantining alone, which is interesting. I will say people are like, oh, are you okay? And like, yes, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> like to be alone in this time is a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> my my children and wife went out of the house yesterday. And for a second, I realized that I was all alone and I didn't, I didn't rush to join them. I was just like, oh, I'm just going to stay right here. It's just quiet. I uh, I quarantined with a very good, wonderful friend of mine for the first maybe week and a half, two weeks. And um, we were at the precipice of destroying our friendship before we decided that this was a bad idea. So, 
Um, but same, you know, I'm going on when we first happened. And I will talk a little bit about how the business evolved, but I was in the city. I was still working for a while. And then kind of mid-April is when we made the difficult decision to shut down our businesses. And I, I mean, there were three weeks that I didn't leave the house. So it's it's a really interesting time. But I say this thing and I really believe it. The days are very long, but the weeks are very short. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'll be yeah. like, oh, it's Friday. But I get up in the morning and I'm like, oof, another day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I zigzag back and forth between being a little anxious about this or very anxious about this and being like, yeah, it'll be fine. And there's no sort of middle ground. I'm either all in anxiety or all in, yeah, it's fine. And then the yeah. days just disappear. I, it is a full roller coaster. I fluctuate between I can't wait to get back out again and then going, oh, God, at some point they're going to make us leave the house. I don't I, I, I don't think I can ever leave the house again. And then like, I can't wait to leave the house. Oh, God, what if I have to leave the house? Like, Yeah, it's I mean, it, it's so wild to think about, you know, we are also we are going to we are going to reopen some restaurants across the country in two weeks on uh, we're going to get back in on May 18th which is, uh, I think it became a big reality for us this week. And same, I've sort of been like, can't wait to get back to work. And now I'm like, very scary <laughs> to get back to work. But, you know, and getting it ready, getting ourselves ready protection-wise is an entire new industry that's popped up. You know, I'm literally buying thermometers on like a black market right now. <laughs> Not really, but kind of. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's incredible, the industry and businesses that have also popped up in this. I have a uh, a few of my bartender friends have started a home delivery uh, cocktail service where they drop off $8 cocktails five <laughs> nights a week. Nice. So, you know, it's like the hustle is strong in New York City. All right. So tell me how you tell me how you got from Richmond to New York City and how you went from arts into restaurant. So like Aaron said, I moved up with a gaggle of friends, uh, with my two best friends a little, almost 14 years ago now. Couldn't get out of Virginia fast enough. I watched the Muppets take Manhattan <laughs> too many times as a kid, and New York was the only place I ever wanted to go. And I think uh, I grew up, my family is in the arts. My dad was a uh, fairly well-known poet who led the MFA program in writing at Bennington. And my uh, my stepmother was the executive director of the Academy of Amer American Poets when I moved here. So my family was here. I was ready for this career in the arts. And I had managed a restaurant in college to put myself through college. So I thought, in the meantime, I'll get a restaurant management job and start auditioning. And I went on um, zero auditions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, this is 2005, and I got an entry-level job at $52,000 a year. And my dad, uh, who was at, the, at this time a published, very well-respected, he was teaching at Columbia, poet, called all of his poet friends and told them that I was making more than he had ever made in a year in his life. And it was a huge, you know, to think of, uh, to think of that was just astounding, right? And how honestly proud my dad was probably that I wasn't auditioning at the time, and you know had really joined the dark side of you know. So, so you didn't you didn't go on auditions not because you weren't getting auditions, but because you you were you were making money. Yeah, for sure. And I you know I had this I I did a bunch of work. Uh, kind of there was a gap between college and New York about a year, and I was working um, as an actress, and it was great, and I was really happy. I was making no money, 
But I will tell you, like, there, there is a turning point. I had eaten nothing but avocados for seven months. Um, I was the skinniest I'd ever been. And I went in for a costume fitting. And the costumer told me, like, you really either need to lose 20 more pounds or gain 100. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, you can't stay in this middle size. And at the time, there just wasn't 20 more pounds that my body could have ever given. And I thought... I'm going to deal with a lifetime of this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you didn't You didn't seriously consider, oh, I could gain 100 pounds. That would be awesome. <laughs> I, You know, for a second, I was like hitting the ice cream. But uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, it, what was interesting was the people that I moved to New York City with were still in the arts. You know, a very dear friend of mine stayed, acted and, and made a decent living at it in New York up until she had children for a decade in very small parts and, you know, a very unforgiving business and really hit the pavement. And uh, I remember kind of looking at what was happening in New York at the time and extremely talented friends who moved here and never got cast, you know, because literally the best of the best is here. You know, if you were a, you know, premier talent in Richmond, Virginia, there's millions of you right right well and and, you're not special anymore and it's a crapshoot i mean and the the very also you might not weigh the right amount yeah oh no oh she's absolutely right what what she just said is absolutely part of this industry it's one of the worst parts of this industry but it still exists i mean you you have to fit a type and those types especially for women are, are very narrow I mean, you have to. She's when really? she said, "Tell me more about lose. how hard it is to be a woman, Erin." <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is always my favorite part of the day. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want me to, I can absolutely. Well, I can, actually, I can draw charts and shit. That's hilarious. No, but the industry will will narrow. I mean, for actresses, it's just horrible. It's the worst oh, ever. For sure. It happens for men, too, but it's worse. It's, I mean, you know, it's sort of famously awful for actresses. And not really evolving very quickly either. You know, it's it's the same as it's always been, yeah. you know? And I think that, yeah. 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 Facing a lifetime of that felt hard. Yeah. Well, and also you have to, you have to, the most talented people in the world, it doesn't matter you if you don't get the right job, right? I mean, it just takes that one breakout job. And you can get that without talent. Or you can get that with talent. It kind of doesn't really matter. It's like a lottery system more than anything else. For sure. And very quickly taken away. You know, I have friends that have been extremely successful on Broadway, national tours, you know, really felt like it was, this is the time, you know, this is my breakout. And then four years later, you know, are kind of back to square one and aren't working. And, you know, you had that moment, but that moment goes fast. Yeah, yeah. We used to, I mean, there was a saying that we used to say, uh, it's hard to make a living, but you can make a killing. I mean, you know, you you either make it or you grind it and you spend a long time grinding. But you decided to get out of that race because you had success in other areas. Yeah, I did. And so I was, you know, early in my 20s, I'm managing restaurants. New York really feels like Disneyland when you move here at 22. It's just, you know, debaucherous and crazy and um, so fun. Uh, It's the best place in the entire world. Tara has has a gleam in her eye right now because she did the same thing. I love New York. I did the same thing. I I never actually lived there, but just going into New York at like 11 o'clock at night on a road trip from Richmond. Yeah. Yeah. There's just an an electricity that exists in New York no matter what, you know? Um, And, you know, what was really funny is I was – so I was a restaurant manager. I had no respect for my job. 
I literally like wouldn't tell people what I did. I worked for TGI Fridays at the time and it would take 12 questions for me to get that out of my mouth. Why wouldn't you tell people? Why? Why? Were you- well, I'd be like, because I, I hated, I'm not a TGI Fridays guest. So, you know, I wasn't like, I didn't have a ton of respect from that. And I think I really thought I would go back to acting. I thought I would get settled in New York and then I would find time to, after I paid my rent, I would find time to audition and time to grind it out and time to um, have that. And it was, you know, I really struggled with the decision not to act for decades. You know, I had gone to a performing arts high school. I had had an agent at the age of eight and done, you know, movies. I'd gone to college for it. To think that I was not going to do it felt unfathomable, even though I hadn't done it in years. So, so the the business that you ended up being successful in was was supposed to be your side hustle. F- correct. Yeah. And I mean, here's the part that why I, you know, why I rose in that industry was that I'm super competitive. I hate being told I can't do something. So all of those things were still such a great driver. I still wanted to be the best restaurant manager possible, even though I didn't feel particularly passionate about it. And I, uh, uh, I felt very passionate about feminism, though. I was a women's studies minor in um, college, and I was kind of organizing these women's forums for Fridays across the country. And we would sit in a panel and uh, have women leaders and kind of have them talking to us about their experience. And I was on this panel one time, and they're going down the line saying, like, how'd you get into the restaurant industry? And there's three women before me, and they're all like, well, when I was a little girl, all I wanted to do was flip hamburgers. And I'm like, this is... BS. And it got to me and I said, um, I didn't want to do this. Like I didn't, I didn't dream of this as a, as a child, but the restaurant industry chose me and that's how I felt. You know, I felt that this industry had plucked me out in a way that I spent years not, not really reciprocating the feeling. (laughs) So So you sort of followed your successes. Yeah, for sure. And then I think I got really serious about it. You know, I was 24. I was I was a, the general manager of a six million dollar restaurant. Who would give that job to a 24 year old? I have no idea. God bless my boss. Um, <laughs> and uh, the thing about leadership, especially in these very high volume restaurants, that you know, I've had one restaurant with 200 employees. You know, when you're doing 16 million dollars in sales a year, it's just it's an incredibly large workforce. Nothing will teach you more about yourself than leadership. Right. Everything that is good about you, everything that is bad about you. I'm pretty sure parenting is like this, too, although I don't know. But, you know, you put a big ass mirror (laughs) in front of your face and you learn a lot about yourself and it kind of really forces you to be introspective and it forces you to be emotionally intelligent. And what I was getting out of that work in my 20s was was changing who I was as a person. And I could very clearly see that leadership was a passion of mine, you know, one that I probably don't get right a lot of the time because I think leaders that think they're great leaders are probably terrible leaders. Um, Right. But one that like was ignited a passion in me that then, then I could fall in love with my job and it gave me permission. So when you first started, how much of your training in theater was useful? Uh, All of it. So, you know, my favorite part of my job. um, And when I first started, I mean, working in a restaurant is certainly, it's very simple math. You add, subtract, and divide. So you don't really need to be good at any of that. But what you do need to be great at is people. You need to put on a show every single night. Um, You need to host the show. When things go wrong, you need to figure out quickly how to be flexible and improvise. And, you know, there is, we always say, you know, it's like when you watch 
watch that movie waiting and she goes into the kitchen, starts cursing, you know, like you are on stage in a dining room all of the time, whether or not you are waiting or you're maitre d'ing or you're the manager, you're the bartender, you are someone's entertainment, especially the way people eat these days. They don't even talk to each other. You know, they're more interested in what's going on around them. So it's becomes even more important that there is a uh, an entertainment factor to it. So I, I think all of it. And then as my career grew too, I think one of the most translatable things is an ability to public speak. I think, you know, getting up in front of large groups of people and feeling comfortable about that is hard. Right. And something that, you know, right. so, years of theater training really beats into you. Right. Well, yeah, of course. But it also, that that then uh, differentiates you from the other leaders who are coming up in, like the the woman who dreamed her whole life about flipping hamburgers, is probably terrified about standing up in front of talking to people. But you're like, ah, talking to people, that's easy. It's the flipping of hamburgers. Yeah. I can't stand it. And I've never needed a microphone. So that's really helpful, too. I can <laughs> scream down a cook's line louder, louder than anybody else. <laughs> so when, so now you are, let's go ahead and you're, you're like vice president of something for Luke's Lobster. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the vice president of operations for Luke's. I've been with Luke's for about three years. Really amazing, just an amazing company. Uh, One of the things that's really important to know about us is we're vertically integrated. So what we sell is basically chilled seafood rolls, lobster rolls, crab rolls, shrimp rolls. That's it. In restaurants that we refer to as shacks. (laughs) So, um, and we're vertically integrated, meaning that we are on the docks and we literally buy from those lobstermen, take it back to our seafood company in Saco, Maine, process everything and then send it around the country. And now the world um, with our Chinese Japanese partners, we have a wholesaling business. So we're really a seafood company masquerading ourselves as a restaurant group. And I run our operations on our restaurant side. So we have about 30 restaurants domestically, um, a little uh, between five and 600 employees, depending on season, um, an entire headquarters up in Maine, which is about 20 to 25 people. And then, and then a team of area managers, directors of operation, GMs, team members, shift leaders, kind of making us hum. We operate in 10 U.S. states. So any major city is probably somewhere we are. So my, my life pre-COVID was three to four days a week of travel. I live in an airport lounge very happily. I hadn't been home for more than six days in two and a half years. And yeah, and then I'll kind of walk into what these weeks felt like. You know, I remember the last trip I took, I took a trip down to Miami and COVID had sort of, we, we could hear the buzzing. We knew about this because of our, you know, our Japanese and Chinese partners. And this, and, was, this was back in like January? Yeah, this is like mm, late February. Okay. Maybe. okay. So that's the last trip. And we start to see uh, things were getting squirrely. <laughs> so we started a coronavirus committee and it was me, my owner, and um, someone from our human resource department. And we decided we were going to talk twice a week about coronavirus and how we were going to handle it. So that first week we had our first call and that quickly morphed that week into us on the phone every single day. So we were on the phone at two o'clock every day talking about what was happening. So, uh, so you, were talk, you, you were talking to people in Japan who, who were actually experiencing the earlier part of this. Correct. So you, you had firsthand sort of knowledge, your business did. Yeah. And for us, by the time it hit the U.S., that was really a triple whammy for us. So we've had a couple of really terrible things happen to our business this year. Chinese tariffs were really hard on us, obviously. Then this hit 
Japan and China and change the way that we export um, their businesses. They were already in quarantine. So that was sort of strike two. And then by the time it hit the U.S., that that was a third strike on what was becoming an incredibly uh, mountainous landscape to start to scale. And it hit right away. Like like within a, you said, within a week, these meetings became every day and stuff started just like – like a, like a waterfall. For sure. I mean, I've never seen anything move faster in my life. You know, I've run businesses during 9-11, during the financial crisis of 2008. And, you know, that's sort of, I think that's the only thing we knew to compare this to right at the beginning. And it became really obvious really quickly that that was not an option. And so if we're in the first week of March, we have a week of phone calls. Luckily, we are really lucky that during that time we did not have anybody fall ill. So, you know, knock on something. But we still had our teams operating around the country. We put in advanced sanitation right away, you know, hand sanitizer, you know, there different things we're cleaning in the restaurant. By the next Monday, we were on the phone realizing um, we'd lost about 80% of our sales at that point. Whoa. So we went from... We were basically flat to last year, a little bit up actually. We were having a really good year to being down 80%. Within within what what time frame? Within a couple weeks? No, within one week. Within a week. Within yeah. one week you dropped 80%. Yeah. Well, it's I mean it seems like a gazillion years ago, right? But yeah. like the first week in March when they were shutting when they were getting ready to shut down the schools here, I was talking to my kids you know, my kids' friends' parents saying, let's go ahead and have play dates and stuff, you know, like school's out, but we can still hang out. And, you know, and I remember saying like, to to your wife, I, we could still go to Aladdin's, right? Because the seating is pretty distant. So we could still go to this restaurant where they don't, yeah. you know, the, the seating space far enough, I'm sure it'll be fine. And then within a week going, we're not leaving. Are you kidding? We're not leaving the house at all we're, for anything. We're not going out. Right, right. And the entire world came to that realization at the same time. Really fast, right? Really, fast. and it was a million years ago now. Right. Well, and we were we were just talking about this here yesterday. Those uh, that what do you call that creative disruption that happens all the time. You know, whole industries change and go like, but not so much, so big, it's so fast. It's really interesting. So my students, I'm teaching, I'm teaching a college class, and my students, most of them, don't have any work at all. They've been laid off. A couple of them. One of them works for a cleaning company. He can't get to class because he's so busy. He's just right. cleaning office buildings right. all well, the time. And, and so you're, it just and you're depends. Saying, uh, Virginia, you're saying that you're also uh, able to pivot a little bit. Your company's able to pivot a little bit. Yeah. And, and what are you doing there? Well, so it became a, apparent to us really quickly that, so the restaurants, and we can get into this a little bit more, but right away we knew that the restaurant industry was going down. It wasn't us. We needed to, uh, I don't know if you know much about restaurant economics, but they're stupid. Uh, restaurants make no money. Yeah, the margins are virtually nothing. Negligible. So, you know, if you make 10% profit, you're an outstanding restaurant. So we knew really quickly what was important is we were bleeding cash. We needed to get our team members in a place that they were going to be able to file for unemployment. We could see really quickly that that was going to get gnarly. So we decided to let our teams go really fast. And that was literally calling 400 people and letting them know that we were terminating their employment immediately so, so wait, that they could get on unemployment. So that's, I haven't actually heard anyone say this from a business owner perspective because, you know, we keep hearing about all of these awful companies that have laid people off. But I hadn't really thought about that. You're saying that that's actually 
what you should do for the employees because then they can get unemployment. Yeah, I mean, we, we uh, 100%, I mean, it was obviously that you never, all, all it is is, oh, these huge layoffs. But for us, it was, if we didn't start laying people off very, very quickly, there was going to be no company for them to return to. And they just don't get hours and they can't get unemployment because they're still employed. Correct. Uh-huh, or nice. we could have okay. cut their hours and then you're at 10 hours a week. Right. And right. unemployment, we knew that the extra $600 was going to come eventually. We could tell that that was going to happen. And we thought we better get these people filed so then that they were ahead of the curve. And our employees were about two to three weeks ahead of the rest of the country in terms of filing. And it it made a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I... I I have been doing some consulting with some of the business and not a single one, not a single company that I've talked to uh, has made this decision based solely on the bottom line. Like everybody cares about their people as near as I can tell. And it's a – for an industry like restaurant business, cash flow is more important than debt. But you have so much overhead and though – you know, I mean I can't even imagine what that's like. Well, and for us, it's also about uh, paying our fishermen – or the 20,000 pounds of lobster that I currently have sitting in a freezer while our restaurants aren't running. Did you need help getting rid of that by any chance? (laughs) So the question about how did we pivot, that first week we act really fastly. We closed about half of our restaurants at that time. We kept 12 open. Um, We lay off our teams and we start, we, we always have sold our seafood to places other than ourselves. So that became our number one thing is get rid of inventory. We needed to turn that into cash quickly. We have a sales team up in Maine that is world class. Um, and we have great partners with Whole Foods. And right away we knew we had to get into grocery stores, that that was going to become the biggest uh, way right. for us to move. Well, on. and so the co- commercial, so there's two entirely different ecosystems, marketing to customers who are going to eat it versus whole, marketing it to wholesalers who are going to move it. But you're saying you already had those you already had those customers, those wholesale customers. So yeah, we had wholesale customers and then we needed new wholesale customers. So um, you know, it right away it was let's call Costco, let's figure out. And all of those companies are fairly picky about who they let distribute. So they come in, there's lots of tests they do throughout your uh, you know, our seafood company, which is our processing plant. So we're hitting pretty stringent rules about what makes our product quality to be able to wholesale it to. So that was really interesting. We were really lucky to have it. The Probably one of the most important things we did is we immediately started an e-commerce uh, business off of our website. So like literally in two days, we started an e-commerce business, which we'd never really done before. Yesterday, we had a record-breaking day. My boss, Luke, and his partner, Ben, were at our seafood company at 7 a.m. this morning, taking people's temperatures and stuffing $40,000 worth of boxes for Mother's Day, which we couldn't have really imagined three weeks ago. Right. Um, So, and e-commerce has become enough of a driving force for us that we'll keep it post-COVID. I think that it will change our business a little bit. We, you know, we realized we've really been running it with a ragamuffin team of people that took salary cuts six weeks ago that are up at our plant, uh, our director of culinary, our director of logistics. They've really just been there grinding it out every single day, hoping that it is something that can keep us alive. So did you have a small e-commerce thing or you just built the whole thing from scratch? Literally the whole thing from scratch. We had nothing. But we had products that we wholesale, so we sort of figured we've got a do-it-yourself kit that we've already sold in our restaurants. We've got a bunch of lobster meat and <laughs> and buns, and 
We also started a grocery service out of our Portland Pier restaurant in Maine. That restaurant's been able to stay open the entire time. So week two, we started selling flour, butter, eggs, all of those essentials that people were having a hard time getting at the grocery store. You could, you know, pick up some lobster rolls and a pound of flour out of our Portland Pier restaurant. So figuring out how to be flexible and diversify really quickly. And I think the cool part about this is, For everyone in our business that sits around and creates and ideates all day long, this is a really exciting time for them because anything and everything that will make us any sort of money at this point is up for grabs. Right. So, you know, throw some spaghetti at the wall and let's see what happens. So are you bringing in new lobster or are you just trying to get rid of your existing lobster? We literally started onboarding today up in Saco and we start processing on Monday morning fresh lobster for our 2020 season. How do you – this new e-commerce – chain. How, how do you advertise this? How do you get word out that this exists? Yeah, we haven't done a ton of anything. Um, we've been using our Instagram. We've had a couple of write-ups from it. Um, we've gotten a little bit of press, how to make an eater list or something like that. And then mostly it's honestly just been our Instagram and our email list because we don't, A, we don't have the money to do giant advertising campaigns around this. And B, we're really relying on our families, our friends, our regular guests across the country to kind of keep us going. And we did that in conjunction with feeding the front line. So we were one of the first businesses to start bringing food to hospitals. Our guests could buy the food and we would drop it off to different wards around the country. So I think that that was also something that, A, obviously we were making some money off of that, but it was also giving us a tremendous amount of purpose in a time that felt really really purposeless. So you are literally doing exactly what they say you should do for innovation, which is take what you have and just reimagine new ways of doing it. So that's exactly what you've done. You didn't, you didn't build anything. You said, we have, we have people with Instagram accounts. We have this, we have, let's just go. Yeah. Like we can't spend any money and we need to figure this out, (laughs) which I think that we're really lucky. Like we were founded by, you know, two people who couldn't spell the word restaurant 10 years ago. Neither of them are restaurateurs. <laughs> it is a hard word. In their defense, that is a hard word. <laughs> you know, and I think because of that, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. You know, we're a really young startup-like company um, based on people and a passion to kind of provide for our communities. And because of that, like, sometimes we just don't have the experience to, <laughs> to, to know how silly we're being, and then it kind of works in our favor. So are it are you going to survive the company? Are they going to be able to pull it back together? You know, I think six weeks ago, we didn't really know. Um, I mean, what we're facing right now is uh, we need to start opening these restaurants for a number of different reasons. We've got a bunch of lobster being processed and someone's got to buy it. So that's number one. And, you know, it not only affects the jobs and lives of our managers, but also our fishermen, our wharf managers, their families. You know, we are an entire chain of distribution. So it's not just about the restaurants. And then I think that if e-commerce stays the same, you know, we, we have a little bit of a magic bullet in that through COVID. But we're expecting to be down, you know, if we're if we open back up and this summer we're down 50%, that'll be a huge win for us. But it will change the trajectory of our business. I know a lot of a lot of restaurants here in Richmond, um, you know, if they're if because the margins are so small, if they are not packed, you know, if they are if they're operating at 50%, they're operating at a loss. I mean, period. And are 
is your company diversified enough that you can operate at 50% and still not be taking on too much debt? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky for a couple different reasons. A, we don't cook anything in our restaurants. We do all of that up at our seafood company. So all we're doing in the restaurants is toasting a bun and putting fresh lobster into it. So it's an incredibly simple experience. We call what we do at the restaurants infinitely simple because what we do up at the seafood company is so, so complicated. So it takes very, it doesn't take many people. It's not very expensive to run. And we, we're a QSR business. We're t- we're, we're, we are made for takeout and delivery. We have dining rooms right now, but they'll remain shuttered. I don't know the next time anybody will sit in a restaurant. Um, what, what, is a, what is a QSR restaurant? Is oh, a quick service restaurant. Oh, gotcha. So like a grab and go, um, sorry, vernacular, uh, <laughs> where you kind of run in and, and you can get food. So, you know, we'll open up to takeout and delivery. We'll do it with really small teams. You know, the first person who will be in a restaurant making lobster rolls is me. Um, and same thing with Luke and his partner, Ben, up at our seafood company. And then we'll be able to hopefully bring our teams back eventually is sort of our, our goal. But it will be slow and it won't look like it did five months ago. There's no way that it can because we also might operate at a loss. We could open up these restaurants and not do the sales we need to break even and start losing more money, which is I think, you know, they're they're estimating right now that 70 percent of restaurants that are closed will never reopen. Oh, 70 percent. 70 percent. I was and looking so- at it in Richmond. The the market for restaurants was already top. It, there were too many restaurants to for the city to support the number of restaurants they had. And now yeah, that's a tough industry. Yeah, it was always yeah. a tough industry. And for I, I think about this because I spent so much of my the early years of my career in traditional full service dining that like what how will you wait tables if you can't get within six feet of someone? Yeah. You know what I mean? How do you drop a drink off? How do you you know, there's just all these nuances that restaurants just aren't aren't made for this. They're not socially distanced places. Right. When the, when, but they employ so many people. When cholera hit Paris, you know, many, many years ago. I mean, that's Paris looks the way it does because cholera. I mean, right. it was it was a medieval city, and then everyone was cramped in, and they decided, you know, that's a bad idea for this new world. So probably what emerges from this will look. I mean, there will be a, there will be structural differences in the world. I, no one knows what those are going to be. Uh, we will never. I have a friend who's actually in construction to open up a restaurant right now in New York City. And I spent the other night on the phone with him going over his floor plan and talking about like, okay, all of this is trash now. What? How do we reimagine this in a world where you can't put tables within six feet of each other? And in New York, part of the beauty of dining <laughs> in New York is you literally sit on top of another person, you know, <laughs> while you're right. drinking a martini in the West Village. And, you know, it is immensely sad to think that that, that I don't know if that will ever exist again. It probably will. I mean, in some form, uh, like the, the in some form. Yeah, like the theater. The theater has lived. You know, you think about you're all crammed in a room and you're watching people. The theater has lived through plagues before. I mean, this is Many. not new. This is not new for that particular thing. It will be different for a while. I do think the neat thing that's uh, I sat on this panel earlier this week about people talking about can we shut down the streets at five o'clock so we can put tables out into the streets of New York? Oh, oh I like it. Fresco, so socially distanced dining or the parking spaces in front of restaurants. Can we put tables in them? And, you know, and I um, like someone it. said, shut down Ninth Avenue. What do we even need it for? You can get down seventh. And I think those are things New York is actually really talking about is, you know, shutting down our streets so that our businesses can survive. That's genius. I like it. That would be cool. That'd be great. 
So, and what an experience for the entire city to sort of turn off at five o'clock and it become a get out in your neighborhoods, you know, sit outside, be part of that. It, it won't withhold us through winter, but, uh, you know. <laughs> no, not New York. I did look up igloos this week uh, for a friend who's doing some garden dining. You just need a roof covering like the top of all the skyscrapers to just like... No, you know, I've like in, insulate been, the entire city block. Yeah, yeah, I've been in some really cold uh, places that had uh, outdoor dining. Heaters. With those, you know, those heaters. Yeah. Yeah, but not New York in the winter. No, not New York it in the winter. That's New York in the winter. It was not New York. No. The real question facing New York is can you make it a snow globe? I like that too. Oh, okay, yeah. That would be cool. Maybe that's, you know, the, all those movies with the future and the cities are under domes. Yeah. Maybe that's what this was, yeah. was just so the restaurants could operate. <laughs> Maybe that's where the future is. Can we talk about those um, those conversations you had when, um, I mean, that must have just been horrendous. Yeah, I mean, I think that solidly foreshored the, the worst week of my career. Um, and, and honestly, maybe top 10 worst week of my life. You know, I think having to call people no matter if you think you're doing the right thing or not or if you're doing it out of necessity and knowing that you are, you know, in fact, laying people off indeterminably, right? It wasn't like I've done this for a lot of different reasons in the past, whether it be like a remodel or a restaurant caught caught on fire and all of those are really tough. But you get to say, hey, you're going to come back in six weeks. You know, here's what we're going to do and you're going to come back. And there's no timeline of when anyone will come back. And something, what our, what we saw a lot of our competitors were doing were they were emailing their employees. They were texting them. Oh God. They were putting notes on doors. Oh God. And like oh God. right away, we were just like, we've always prided ourselves on being a different sort of company. And this is really where the rubber met the road, right? It was our chance to prove it. So, you know, we got on a call with each restaurant team and sort of told them what was happening, told them what our plan was. Uh, One at a time or like a big group of people? uh, In groups of basically like five to 15. So small groups. One of our core values has always been transparency. One of, I think one of my biggest leadership, it's like, just be honest with people, right? Like if you're just honest with people, even if you're a jerk or the news isn't good, they're always going to appreciate you having been honest with them. And that was, we just doubled down on that. And we thought, we're not going to lie to people about this. We're going to tell them where we are financially. We're going to explain to them how these decisions get made. And then we're going to stop for questions. And the questions were varied. You know, some people were extremely angry. Some people were very scared. There were a lot of tears. And you're doing this, but you're doing this on on the phone. Yeah, because we're we're doing this for our restaurants in San Francisco and, you know, Miami. And I remember just saying, like, we got grounded that week. And for someone who travels, you know, every single week of her life, the day my boss said, like, and you're done, don't get on your next airplane. You know, I'm like, I have eight trips planned. I'm I'm going. He's like, yeah. no, you're not going anywhere. L- later today, I'm doing a thing with the uh, surgery here, the doctors in surgery, because they're having to have these really difficult conversations on Zoom, essentially. Um, For sure. You know, and uh, and there, no one has ever been trained in this, how to have a conversation. of Because you would want to be in the room with somebody to break this kind of news. Always. Like, who wants to do this over the phone, over the internet? You know, and I got, but I, I will tell you, my, our teams, I know everybody says, like, our teams are what makes us special. Our teams are what pulls us through. But, like, that is true. And my last phone call of the day, this was hour 11 of just nonstop firing people. I'm literally smoking out a window for the first time in 10 years. And I get on the phone with this team and I said to them at the end, do you have any questions? 
And one of them said, no, I just like, thank you so much. Virginia, are you okay? And I like burst into tears. I'm like, no, I'm not okay. (laughs) You know, I'm like, thank you for asking. Like, no, this is awful. You know, and like, I thought like how gracious and beautiful of our teams. And we had a lot of that. You know, we had a lot of people say, thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for helping us. And to be you know, really to be part of, I feel like every time you have to terminate someone's employment, whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong, you're part of someone's worst day of their life. You know, you're part of this huge thing that will change their life. And that is a responsibility that is weighs heavy on me, always will, should always. To hear them, you know, be gracious was just so you've, you've You've done that before. You've had to have those conversations before. Yeah. How was, how were these... These seem like they're fundamentally different because those you're those you're letting people go for a variety of reasons. This one is that the world has fallen out from under everybody's feet. And there are so many. There are not answers, right? So uh, you know the questions that were coming up, I, I can't answer so many of them because we have no idea. And I think that was the worst part is not and and everybody being in the same thing. You know, right away our entire C-suite and ownership forwent their salaries completely. Mm. Um, we did huge pay cuts throughout for anybody that was still employed or is still employed. And the layoffs included, you know, we are really a restaurant group that runs like a small, tight-knit family. So to lose a family member for something as arbitrary as a pandemic, right, no control, like no reason, is just heartbreaking, you know. And to make the hard, difficult decision that some of them won't be back. And that is heartbreaking and feels pretty unfair. Where were you physically when you first had, when you had that first conversation, when you were first like, I got to make these phone calls. Where, where were you physically? I paced my living room for an entire day. So I, I was at home for all of that. And at home, I mean, I remember the night we decided that we were going to do this. It was a very small group, me, our COO, Luke, my owner, um, Haley, our vice president of human resources, and I remember we made the decision on the phone. Uh, no, we were on Zoom because I had to turn my camera off and mute myself and because I was crying. You know, and I think we all went to bed that night. Like, three weeks ago, we were running a successful business. You know, we were opening in Shanghai the next month. Like, it was unfathomable that, like, this had all happened in the course of what was realistically about 10 days. And I think that was an emotional roller coaster that, you know, no one could have been prepared for. Well, and and on a personal note, you've also taken a pay cut, right? Like you're also, like everyone else, you've got to keep making rent and the money's not what it was. And it's not coming back anytime soon, right? So all of these people, it's not just that they were laid off. It's that how are they going to get more work, right? Like they're not going to get more work. You're not going to get your paycheck back to where it needs to be to be able to support your Like everybody's screwed. Everybody's just screwed for a long time. For the foreseeable future. Right. Right? It's not, there's no end date. You know, I'm living on a salary right now that is untenable to New York City. Right. And you can't fix it because it's not like anyone else has a better job to offer you. For sure. You know, I was talking to a recruiter yesterday and she said, I'm talking to people, big shot, you know, COOs that are, you know, I want $150,000. And she's saying, you better be ready to take 80. Like, that's what your job is worth now. Like, what you thought it was worth, oh, yeah, it's, it's a, worth half that amount. Oh, yeah, it's a buyer's market. Yeah, even if even if the job is there, which it probably won't be, you know, here's, here's where you're ready. And I think that's a really interesting thing for us to think about, too. As we go forward and hire, it's going to be an incredibly competitive 
it's going to be hard on everybody. You know, it's this, it is a buyer's market, but it's, you know, we are basically restaurant managers and people that run restaurants are commodities and we're not worth very much right now. Right. But your rent's not going to go down anytime soon. You know, I think that is the thing too, talking to, you know, our landlords of not only our commercial restaurants, but starting to think, um, you know, what will they do in these big cities when unemployment is this high and we've made this many sacrifices, you know, at some point they're going to need to do something, but. So I'm not sure how to, I'm so glad to able to talk to you and hear these stories. This was exactly what I wanted to hear. I just don't know how to end this on anything other than a down note. Well, we're going to talk about her nose ring. Oh, is what okay. we're going to talk about. So, well, no, gotta, before we, before because we're going to we're going to talk we're going to catch up we're going to catch okay. up personally. But I want to know. Uh, I have a I have a good way to end this. So you know I will say that like this is the week that we are starting to talk about going back, and I know that that is scary because obviously the. Uh, stay-at-home orders being relinquished doesn't mean coronavirus is less of a threat or it's any less scary to go out into the environment. But I've, you know, I've been making, we're not forcing anybody back to work. So if you're not comfortable right now, a lot of our competitors are like, come back or you're fired. Or many of our competitors never closed during this. They've stayed open the entire time. And we made a really difficult decision to shutter completely for the safety of our employees about a month ago. And when I get on the phone with my teams right now and I say like, Listen, you don't have to come back. You're making good money on unemployment. You got it till the end of August. Here's an opportunity. You know, here's how we're going to keep you safe. They're really excited to come back and they're really glad to have something else to do. And I'm really excited to get back into our communities and be able to give what is, you know, our lobster rolls an essential service to New York City (laughs) and beyond. I mean, I think they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think on the other end of it, is it essential that we open so that 70% of lobster is sold in restaurants and 80% of that 70% are fine dining restaurants? So if someone doesn't start buying like the lobster, the fisheries could collapse this summer. And that is something that is extremely important to us and is going to happen with every fishery, with every farm. So, you know, there is there is some light at the end of this tunnel. It will be a bumpy ride. There is no sort of on switch. You know, we're not opening up 20 restaurants on the 18th. We're opening up four and we're going to see how it goes and put our toe in and hope for the best. But, you know, there there is hope in this. And what I've I'm part of a women's group that. We basically all just get on the phone and cry um, once a week. But uh, at the end of it, we say, like, what are you taking away from this? And I said this when the crisis started. I said, we are really going to see who people are during this. We're going to see what their character is made of. And we're going to get to know people on a more intimate level than we ever have in every facet of our life. And I will tell you that I have been pleasantly surprised and humbled and in awe of the way my teams have come together, our community has come together, our cities have come together to shut down and keep ourselves safe. And I think that there's a lot of good to be taken from taking a step back and having your world turned upside down. So it's not just light at the end of the tunnel. It's actually you get to know more than you did before. Yeah, and it's a little bit of a change in in direction, right? It'll be a little bit of a renaissance for our industry, but there will be cool things that come out of that. And, you know, there's going to be deeper relationships within our organization and our personal lives, and we're having to depend on each other in ways we haven't. You know, we did a happy hour last week where we – my boss dressed up as Mario and I dressed up as Uma Thurman from Pulp Fiction because we're <laughs> funny. Um, 
But, you know, like we talked about mental health with our with a team of our 40 GMs. We never spend time on, you know, Zoom talking about everybody's mental health. And I think that's really important. And I'm really proud to do that. And also just infinitely honored to be a leader of teams and to be able, you know, we there's a there's a quote that happened our first week. Luke and I like to talk to each other in quotes. But um, there's a quote that said, you know, leaders lead from the back during good times and the front during bad times. Oh, that's good. That's nice. You know, leading from the front during what is the worst crisis that, that we have seen in our industry is an honor and lessons that will change the trajectory of my career and my life. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. We'll end with that. I want to end with one, actually, the actual end. I want to know if you, because you've had such a journey from when you left Richmond up to New York, if you could uh, give yourself or someone like you uh, advice, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice and imagine that there's somebody in school right now trying to go into the arts or, or anything, really, what what would you, uh, what one piece of advice could you give your younger self or somebody who's like that? You know, I, I held on to the guilt of not acting for over a decade. You know, I really felt like I had failed at something. And I remember I was 34 years old and I said to my mother, like, what was the point of all of the acting lessons and college and everything if I was just going to end up like this, you know? And she said, end up like this, like you have a great career, you lead hundreds of people. But it took that having that conversation 13 years after I'd stopped acting for me to stop beating myself up about not doing it. So, you know, the thing I would have said to my younger self is to follow your, your path will lead you many different places. And you shouldn't feel guilty about any of them. And getting a degree in theater is so valuable in so many different ways. And you can do so many things with that, that if you end up not doing the thing you thought you would do at 21, it really won't matter in the larger scheme of things. Yeah, I think that's the lesson. The lesson is that anyone at 21 doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. All right, so we're going to end the official podcast there. Thank you so much. We didn't plug Luke's Lobsters and the Instagram and the and the e-commerce thing enough. You got to do a thing to yeah. and tack it on. I was looking at your Luke's Lobster uh, website. Yes, yeah, so you can find us at lukeslobster.com. That's and that's, on Instagram at Luke's Lobster. And can it, we still order? Can we still order lobsters? Yeah. And I, I saw the I saw the website. It looks delicious. Like there's a video of all coming fresh from the sea and all that. It's spectacular. You can order whole lobsters. You can order just knuckle and claw meat. We have a limited run on scallops, and we'll be turning that into halibut soon. All fresh from the Gulf of Maine, as well as uh, an ability to just make a lobster roll and all sorts of different. Other if I order a whole lobster, is it going to show up live? It will show up live. I'm going to. Are you serious? I think I need some live lobster just to like leave in Mother's people's Day. front porches. Like just, I just need to like ring people's doorbell <laughs> I, and then like I, run. You need <laughs> to know, like open the door and there's a live lobster there. If I ordered some <laughs> lobster today, could it, what, how soon could it get there? Visit reinventionpodcast.com for transcripts and other free resources.